0: And you're going to want to turn to 1 Chronicles chapter 10. 1 Chronicles chapter 10 is where we're going to be today. So last week we did nine chapters of genealogies, or at least we said we did nine chapters of genealogies. This week we're just doing uh, one chapter, 14 verses, very sustainable. You are a gentleman and a scholar. Yes, perfect. I'm pretty handsome too. Yes, good looking guy. And single, ladies, just in case we uh, And while you guys are finding 1 Chronicles, if you don't know where 1 Chronicles is, uh, what's really cool about uh, almost every modern Bible we have, it has a table of contents in the front. I mean that. There's no sarcasm in that uh, comment. And so just look it up uh, and find it. It's pretty simple. It's like any other book. So, 1 Chronicles chapter 10, and while you're doing that, just uh, another uh, shameless plug for uh, men's retreat. Um, One of the things that uh, we're really good at here at Servants Church is waiting to the last minute. We want to be bad at that, so could you sign up today if you're interested? I I know a couple people have said, I don't have any cash on me. Really, we just need to know you're committed, so if you can just sign in in the form, get it into the silver box That would be great, or you can even hand it to me or Ben if you want, okay? We just want to get our numbers straight. We're not adding any rooms this year, so once they're full, you can't go. So make sure you get signed up right away, all right? Okay, 1 Chronicles chapter 10, starting in verse 1. Follow with me, and I'll read it with my voice less, and then I will pray, and we will get into it. Now the Philistines fought against Israel, and the men of Israel fled before the Philistines and fell slain on Mount Gil- Gilboa. Then the Philistines followed hard after Saul and his sons, and the Philistines killed Jonathan, Abinadab, and the other guy, <laughs> Saul's sons. And the battle became fierce against Saul, and the archers hit him, and they wounded, he was wounded by the archers. Then Saul said to his armor-bearer, Draw your sword and thrust me through with it, lest these uncircumcised men come and abuse me. But his armor-bearer would not, for he was greatly afraid. Therefore Saul took a sword and fell on it. And when his armor-bearer saw that Saul was dead, he also fell on his sword and died. So Saul and his three sons died, and all his house died together. And when all the men of Israel Who were in the valley saw that they had fled and that Saul and his sons were dead. They forsook their cities and fled. And then the Philistines came and dwelt in them. So it happened the next day when the Philistines came to strip the slain that they found Saul and his sons fallen on Mount Gilboa. And they stripped him and took his head and his armor and sent his sword throughout the land of the Philistines to proclaim the news in the temple of their idols and among their people. And then they put his armor in the temple of their gods and fastened his head in the temple of Dagon. And when Jabash Gilead heard all that the Philistines had done to Saul, all the valiant men arose and took uh, the body of Saul and the bodies of his sons, and they brought them to Jabez and buried their bones under the tamarisk tree and fasted seven days. So Saul died for his unfaithfulness, which he had committed against the Lord, because he did not keep the word of the Lord. And also because he consulted a medium for guidance. But he did not inquire of the Lord. Therefore, he killed him and turned the kingdom over to David, the son of Jesse. And Father, we pray that you would again do what we need. (laughs) Please, Lord, would you help us to see why this is an important word for us. We thank you, Lord, that you laid it on the hearts of the author of Chronicles to... Write these sermons, really, for, for your people to learn lessons from their history. And so we pray, Lord, you'd show us as New Testament believers, as followers of Jesus, you'd show us why this is important for us and how this applies to us, Lord. Help us to have ears to hear. Help us to be meek and receive what your word has to say. For we pray it in Jesus' name. everyone who agrees says, Amen. Amen. We definitely live in an age where we feel the effects of leadership fails, don't we? We we understand what this is like. And it's interesting because the, the title, of course, for today's message in chapter 10 is When Leadership Fails. And it's not meant to be autobiographical, just to be clear. But to be honest, it very much could be. Because one of the things about being a leader is you know you're going to fail. And one of the things about being under leadership is the disappointment we feel when they do fail. And we we mentioned last week that one of the themes of of 1 Chronicles is that we would see in God's plan that that plan centers around a good king. And therefore, as we're going to see really from chapter 11 to the end of 1 Chronicles, it's all about David and it's almost all entirely positive. Because David's going to be held up as this king who typifies exactly the kind of king that God wants. So we get to chapter 10, and really chapter 9 was, was still genealogies, and if you look at the end of chapter 9, you'll probably notice that that's the genealogy of Saul, or his, his family line. And then we get to chapter 10, and the author wants us to think about Saul, the end of Saul's life, kind of just sums up right to the end of Saul's life, and how the, 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 the David ended up having being the king, having the throne of Israel. And we read chapter 10, we just read it, and it's not a very positive chapter. There's a lot of things that are quite disturbing about chapter 10. In fact, I'll, I'll tell you as we look into the history here and what, why God uh, was so uh, displeased with Saul, some of the situations are even harder to get our head around as modern day believers. But it's important for us to see that there's a good thing that God wants to bring out of this. The whole reason God wants us to see the failure of Saul is so that we would learn to trust the right king. That we would learn not to sort of follow our propensity to kind of choose a king for ourselves. That's what Israel did. Israel commanded when, when the, the kingdom, when, when the, the, the nation of Israel was basically being led through Samuel the prophet. And then Samuel's sons, well, they were a little bit dodgy. They weren't as, as godly as Samuel was. They said, look, we want a king like all the other nations. And so God said, okay, fine. Uh, Samuel, don't worry about this. They're not rejecting you. They're rejecting me. We'll give them the kind of king they want. And so they picked Saul, or God actually picked Saul for them. And Saul was known as someone who was head and shoulders above the rest. He was known for how handsome and athletic he was. A natural leader. But he failed. He failed miserably. And he failed because God wanted the people to see, listen, this is what happens when you choose your own king. Instead of waiting for the king that I've appointed for you. And so what we want to talk about today is we want to talk about what happens when leadership fails. And I hope that at the end of this, though there's some heavy things that we have to cross to to get to the end, I hope at the end of this that we are realizing, man, God knows how to choose a king. We can trust him. So looking at the first six verses, the first thing I want you to see is that Saul's failures destroyed those that are closest to him. And, and I think, I don't have to probably say this, but I think there'll be some natural lessons here for those of us in leadership. And we'll talk about who, who of us are in leadership in, as we go along. But in verse one, we pick it up, and it says, Now the Philistines fought against Israel, and the men of Israel fled from before the Philistines, and they, uh, the Israel fled, uh, I'm sorry, and the fell and fell slain on Mount Gilboa. Now we know Mount Gilboa is deep into the territory of Israel. What we don't see in Chronicles that we would have seen in 1 and 2 Kings and 1 and 2 Samuel is that the Philistines had been making more and more progress against Israel. Now you probably notice how many times the Philistines are called the Philistines. Over and over again they're mentioned the name, The Philistines. And and the the authors doing this on purpose because we hear that name when we go, okay, we got it the first time, the Philistines. Not the Philippines. Those are, you know, know, uh, those are uh, uh, islands, you know, in the South Pacific. No, the Philistines, okay? And and these people were actually an island people, funny enough. They came out of probably Crete about the time of Abraham. And by the time that, that Israel became a nation or Israel went into Canaan, I should say, by that time, the Philistines started to grow in military might, and they were known for two big things. One, we know from archaeology that when we, they find the Philistine sites, these guys were hard drinkers. Which usually tells you they're having a hard time with, with life in general. But also what they were known for is they were the first in that kind of part of the world, in that time frame, to actually begin to use uh, iron ore. And, and because they were uh, seafaring people, they, they were able to sort of travel to all around the known world, all around the Mediterranean. And so they learned how to make weapons. They learned how to make armor. They learned about warfare from the Greeks themselves. And so this was a, a, an up-and-coming, powerful military nation that was beginning to develop at the same time that the Israelites were supposed to come in and take over the land of Canaan. And so for for a few centuries, the Israelites were able to kind of keep them at bay. But then when we get to Saul's time, what's going on is basically they're taking over. And so when you read Philistine, you might know, okay, now you know some history. But when the Israelites read Philistine, you could hear the corporate, boo, (laughs) hiss, they're the baddies. They were easy to vilify because, well, they were, in this story, the villains. And and, and we, we see what's going on here is that, that we kind of jump into the very end when the Philistines are kind of at their peak and Israel is at their lowest point. And so what we can forget, which the first readers wouldn't have forgotten, is that this sort of failure, this kind of... Uh, the Philistines getting so deep into the the, the the territory of God's people, this didn't happen instantaneously. This was the, the culmination of continual small compromises where God's people weren't obeying God as they should, where God's leadership wasn't doing what God would have them do. And you need to know this. Because when we talk about failure, we can think about the, the biggins, you know, But often, especially spiritually speaking, the big failures that come into our life are often just the the culmination of really small failures and what we think are small acts of disobedience that end up making us vulnerable to this. The enemy gets in and he wins. And so they had gone deep into their territory. And then we read in verse 2, it says, Then the Philistines, they followed hard after Saul and his sons. And the Philistines killed Jonathan, Abinadab, and we'll just call him M, Because I can't pronounce his name. Now this is a, a really a, a sad thing. In fact, I wish we had time to talk about Jonathan. But let me just say this. Jonathan, we know for sure of, of, of Saul's, of these three sons mentioned of Saul. Jonathan was a very honorable man. Jonathan saw that, that God's hand was on David, who had become king. Jonathan and David were close, close friends. And yet here we have Jonathan, who, who even rebuked his dad when his dad was trying to kill David. You can read this in 1 and 2 Samuel. You see that Jonathan still, after all that, is loyal to his dad, the king, and really even dies in battle. And we think, oh, it's, it's criminal. It's horrible. But if you drop down to verse six, the intention of the author is clear for one Chronicles. The sermon, the point of the sermon is clear. He says, "So Saul and his three sons died, and all his house died together." So the point is, any possibility of sons Saul, sons Saul's sons ruling, was eliminated. There's no way that the, the, the lineage of Saul would continue. That's the point. It was over for him. Now there were other, there were other. Uh, sons and stuff but they're, they're talked more about in the other books but for the Chronicles what his point is is look this, it's over for him and then we read in verses 3 to 5 the, the, the horrible details of his death Saul's being chased down it says the battle became fierce against Saul and the archers hit him and he was wounded by the archers the implication is he was probably had a deadly wound that he was going to die from this a slow painful death but a death nonetheless and so Saul knows he's going to die a slow, painful death. So he says to the armor bearer, draw your sword and thrust me through with it, lest these uncircumcised men come and abuse me. That's a legitimate concern. See, see in this culture, it was a more of an honor-shame culture. And in their culture, it, to, to, to have yourself abused, even after you're dead, to have your body abused, was, was worse than death itself. So he's saying, listen, I don't want to be tortured and humiliated. Uh, you know, I don't want that shame to come upon God's people or me and my family. So just kind of kill me now. Let's get it over with. But the armor bearer doesn't want to do it. He's afraid. He says, this is God's king. You don't want to kill God's king. I mean, what do we do? And so, of course, Saul... Does what he thinks is the honorable thing and he falls on a sword and he dies. And what's interesting is what happens, the armor bearer falls suit. He doesn't go, okay, he's dead, drop the armor, boom, take off. He does the same thing. Now again, in that culture there was something honorable about about this. But I, I think that the author of Chronicles wants us to see something else. That the author of Chronicles wants us to see the effect that Saul had on those closest to him. You see, here's what happened. The servant ended up following Saul's example of self-destruction. And this is an amazing principle that applies to leadership. And let me just be really clear. Leadership is not just, okay, everyone recognizes you as the big honcho. Or you have a, a clear position in, in, in your workplace or in ministry. But in a very real sense, every Jesus follower is a leader in the sense that we are called to lead others toward Jesus. So this definitely applies to all of us. But, but this is a principle for leadership, especially if you have a recognized position of leadership. And, and this is it. Listen, people are more likely to follow actions than words. Saul says, I'm the king. Thrust me through. Guy says, I can't do it. Saul thrusts himself through. Guy says, okay, I guess I'll do that. This is important. It's important because one of the things that concerns me about leadership in the church today I'm not talking about servants' church, though we can fall into this easy as well. But the, the modern church in the West, leaders, what we do is we, we tend to have this propensity to, to just preach grace. God forgives, God's merciful, God's gracious, and He absolutely is far more gracious than you can imagine. But we don't call people to repent. It's not the common thing. And so there are a lot of people in church that maybe even here, you know, you really, if you're a Jesus follower, you have to stop having sex outside of marriage. And they go, Yeah, I probably should. I'm so glad God's gracious. Or if you're a Jesus follower, you probably should stop being a drunkard. Yeah, I'll tone it back a bit. Or if you're a Jesus follower, here's the one that gets us in the West, maybe you shouldn't be so greedy. Maybe your life shouldn't be so much about material possessions. Yeah, okay, I'll give a little bit more. Maybe that's what I'll do, and then I can justify keeping what I want. And yet listen to what the Scripture says. The Apostle Paul says in Ephesians chapter 5, You can be sure that no immoral, impure, or greedy person will inherit the kingdom of God, of Christ and of God. For a greedy person is an idolater worshiping the things of the world. Don't be fooled fooled by those who try to excuse their sins. For the anger of God will fall on all those who disobey Him. Now, you guys, I think if you've been here for a while, you know me well enough to know the last thing I want to do is heap condemnation on anybody. Where our sin abounds... God's grace much more abounds. Our God is slow to anger, quick to forgive. That's what the scripture says about him. But God sent his only son, who we'll talk more about at the end, not just so that our sins could be forgiven, but so that we could be freed from sin. He doesn't want to just say, I accept you, but he says, I want to bring you into a relationship where I accept you, and from that place of acceptance, I change you. And so if there's no repentance, we're, we're missing something about the faith that we're called to. This is really important, especially in this context. And see, and here's the thing. Folks, listen, you might preach a good gospel, but if you live a false gospel, no one's going to believe you. And then this isn't just like, uh, again, uh, this isn't, there's no condemnation meant in this. It's just a fact. Peter... Preached a real gospel. The Apostle Peter, St. Peter, he <laughs> preached a real gospel. You can read his letters. You can see in the gospels. He believed the real gospel. He preached a real gospel. He loved Jesus, but he came into a place where he was preaching the gospel, but not living the gospel. And Paul had to rebuke him in front of everybody. And we got to understand this. A principle of leadership is this. Listen, people will often do more. Or, or, or follow more what you do than what you say. Scariest thing about being a parent. <laughs> I, I, there's not a single struggle or failure that my children have entered into that I can't look and go, oh my gosh, I do the same thing. I do the same thing. Now, it's important that we recognize that we've got to take the responsibility seriously. In fact, God wants us to feel the weight of that responsibility. Because it's going to help us understand why it's important that we choose the right king. So then, we pick it up in verse 7, and what happens? It says, when all the men of Israel who were in the valley saw that they had fled, and Saul and his sons were dead, they forsook their cities and fled, and then the Philistines came and dwelt in them. What happens? Saul's failure completely demoralizes God's people. I have to say to you, um, well, I don't, maybe I don't have to say this to you. Many of you maybe know this. A lot of people have come to servant church over the years, not because we're so great, but because they're about, they about to give up on church because they had been burned at church. Now, sometimes people are burned at church because of their own actions. But sometimes they're burned at church because they think, well, how come God's people aren't acting like God's people? And how come the guys that lead us don't lead us towards Jesus? And so they give up on church. And they come here, and we we beg God for the grace they don't give up on church again. (laughs) That we can point them to Jesus. But this is what happens. When leaders fail, it demoralizes God's people. Let's be honest. What is the thing that non-believers throw in our faces more than anything? Uh, Christians are all a bunch of hypocrites. (laughs) Now that's not, to be fair, it's not completely true. Because none of us claim to be perfect. At least I hope you don't. (laughs) But we can sometimes, if we think we're doing well in a certain area, and they are not doing well in others, we can come across with an air of superiority. And that's hypocritical. Because we're not superior. But the point is, is that this is what kind of happened in Israel when Saul was king. His failure demoralized the people so much that they lost motivation to defend their own homes. That's a big deal. It's a really big deal. Occasionally you'll hear maybe somebody famous, this happens a lot in America, where um, someone well-known in pop culture will say, if so-and-so gets voted in, I'm leaving America happen probably might happen here occasionally as well. They almost never do. But to be fair, the reason they don't is it's a lot harder to do than people think. So how bad does it have to get have to get where you go, forget it. I'm leaving my home. I'm giving it up. How demoralized do you have to be? And so then we see in verse eight and ten what happens is that what happens the next day is that the in verse 8 it says that when the Philistines uh, came to strip the slain. This is what all armies would do. Strip the slain and, and, and keep the valuable things for themselves. It's part of the booty or the bounty they get. That they found Saul and his sons fallen on Mount Gabo. And they're going, yes! And they stripped him and they took his head and his armor. And they sent word throughout the land of the Philistines to proclaim in the news of the temple of their idols and among the people. And that they then they put his armor in the temple of their god, 1 Samuel tells us that was the God of Astaroth. And they fastened his head in the temple of Dagon. Dagon was the fish god. Now, you may remember that god if you read 1 and 2 Samuel, because Dagon was the fish god that when the Philistines had taken the Ark of the Covenant, the place uh, that was meant to be in the the tabernacle, the seat where uh, atonement was made for God's people once a year. When the Philistines got a hold of that, they took it and they stuck it in the temple next to Dagon. You know what happened? Dagon fell. <clears throat> arms broke off. So the Philistines propped their god back up and glued the arms back on. Came out next day. Boom! Fell down. Heads broken off. Why? Because you know you bring God's presence in where there's idols, and the idols will fall. But to bring in Saul's armor and Saul's head and connect them to their temp- to their idols, they're basically saying, "See, our gods are bigger than their gods." This is what happens. Part of the thing that demoralizes God's people is that when leaders fail, like Saul, false gods are exalted and the true God is blasphemed. Again, this has practical consequences, or I should say, application to us. Listen to this Romans chapter 2. I'm reading from the New Living Translation. It says, Well, then, if you teach others, why don't you teach yourself? This is Paul rebuking Jews, basically. He says, You tell others not to steal, but do you steal? You say it's wrong to to commit adultery, but do you commit adultery? You can condemn idolatry, but then do you use items stolen from pagan temples? You are so proud of knowing the law. We might say New Testament, knowing the scripture. But you dishonor God by breaking it. No wonder the scripture says the Gentiles, or we might say the unbelievers, blaspheme the name of God because of you. That's heavy, isn't it? But this is what happens when leaders fail. Now we get to verses 11 and 12 and there's a glimmer of hope but maybe not in the way you would see it in 11 and 12 it says and when all Jabesh Gilead heard that it would be an Israelite village heard that the Philistines what they heard that the Philistines had done to Saul and all that happens is all the valiant men arose and they took the body of Saul and the bodies of his sons and they brought them to Jabesh and they buried, them, uh, buried their bones under the tamarisk tree of Jabesh and they fasted seven days <coughs> Now, these valiant men, what they do is they, they go get, of course, the bodies because they want to give them an honorable burial. They bring them back to Jabesh Gilead. They, they bury them there. And the fact that they, seven, they, they uh, fast for seven days is an act of mourning. And there's something good here. Because here's, here's, uh, here's where we begin to kind of transition. Because when Saul fails, destroying those closest to him, and demoralizing God's people. The most valiant men choose to mourn. See, here's one of the problems that we have with leadership failure nowadays. It's not so much that it's a new thing for leaders to fail. They fail all the time. It's how we respond to that failure now. Leaders fail now. What do we do? We complain about it on social media. We argue and get in stupid fights with trolls on social media. Hmm. We complain. We murmur. But you know what valiant men did? They mourned. They humbled themselves and said, God, have mercy. They mourned Saul. Even though Saul failed, they, they, they were broken for him. Hey, I, I don't care what side of the Brexit thing you, you, you land on. I don't want to know, to be honest. I don't really care. Whatever side, whatever, whatever, wherever you're placing the leadership fail, and it's pretty easy to place it on either side, are you mourning over those that loss, that brokenness? Are you praying for your nation? Are you mourning over the sinfulness that is us as British citizens or soon-to-be British citizens? Do you mourn over that? Because, listen, Jesus said, listen to this. Jesus said, Matthew chapter 3, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. See, when we are surrounded by brokenness and by failure, especially leadership failure, the, the, what we should be doing, what the honorable thing to do is to mourn. To first be poor in spirit. And, and this is what this means. To be poor in spirit is to know your own spiritual bankruptcy. To know that before God, you're just as guilty as Saul. God, I'm just as guilty. You know the Isaiah Isaiah the prophet, when he first started prophesying, he was was looking at all of what was going on in Israel. And it was pretty bad stuff. And so he's saying to them, woe to you, woe to you, woe to you. And then he has this vision in chapter 6 of God himself. And he says, woe is me. He says, I'm a man of unclean lips and I dwell among a people of unclean lips. What does he do? He mourns. Blessed are those who mourn. See, we do live in a day and age where leadership fails over and over again. How how are we responding? Complaining? Oh, that's what I expect. Can't trust anybody nowadays. Or mourning? God, forgive us. Forgive us. Now, we get to the good news. There is good news because Saul's failure did destroy those closest to him and it didn't demoralize God's people but we see God remedied Saul's failure. Check this out verse 13 this is great news. So so Saul died for his unfaithfulness which he had committed against the Lord because he did not keep the word of the Lord. Now, you say, okay, that doesn't sound too good, but just stay with me, okay? Here's the first way God remedies Saul's failure. Listen, he remedies it by clearly defining it as unfaithfulness. Have you ever had a relationship with somebody, a boss, a parent, who who you knew that you failed in their eyes, but you had no idea why? That's horrible, isn't it? To, to be in some sort of a situation where your boss isn't happy with you or your parents aren't happy with you, but you don't know why. That's horrible. It's bondage. And, and so what God's doing is God's saying, listen, there has been major failure here by Saul, by the human race, but let me make, be really clear why I'm calling it failure or what that failure should, that failure should be identified as. And here's how we can measure, am I succeeding or am I failing? He calls it unfaithfulness. Specifically, in Saul's case, he says unfaithfulness because (coughs) Saul did not keep the word of the Lord. Now, let me be really clear about this word unfaithfulness. It isn't a lack of mental assent to truth. So, so unfaithfulness is not when you go, I can't get my head around that, or I'm not sure if I can believe it or not, I'm wrestling with that. No, that's doubt. That's part of the process of coming to faith. That's not, that's not necessarily, that's, you might call that a necessary evil of being broken people that need to learn to trust God. We have to wrestle through doubt. It's part of it. This unfaithfulness is not that. It's not, not a sort of a reluctant mental assent, Like, I'm not too sure about this thing or that thing. Unfaithfulness, listen. Unfaithfulness is when we are unwilling to trust God enough to obey Him. Now, this is when sometimes the doubt gets in the way. Because if you refuse to do what God says what, about the things that you do understand... Okay, you'll never learn what he means by the things you don't understand. There's something that happens in our understanding of who God is and what he commands of us that comes only through our obedience. Did you hear that? There's something that happens, there's something that we gain in our understanding that we can only gain as we obey. And here's where Saul failed. Here's Saul's unfaithfulness. Listen to this. It'll be on the screen. <clears throat> 1 Samuel chapter 15. Tricky story to, to deal with, but listen up. <clears throat> and it says, so, Saul, so Samuel said, this is Samuel speaking to Saul after Saul's failed. And we'll explain, you know, it'll be ex- explained in the context. So Samuel says to Saul, when you were little in your own eyes, were you not the head of the tribes of Israel? And did not the Lord anoint you king over Israel? Now the Lord sent you on a mission and said, Go and utterly destroy the sinners, the Amalekites, and fight against them until they are consumed. Now, I want to be really clear there, because in case your mind goes this direction, God did, in this context, command what we would call genocide. This is one of those things in the scripture where I say, it's hard to make an intellectual assent to now, if you understand the history of the Malachites, uh, what they were trying to do to God's people, the kind of uh, uh, practices they had in their idol worship, like burning babies alive, that kind of thing, you kind of see God saying, look, these guys are beyond redemption. They don't want to be redeemed. We need to wipe them out. It's still hard for us to accept, isn't it? But God tells us to Saul. Saul knew this was the case, Okay. And so he says, why, why, why did you not do this? He, Samuel says, why then did you not obey the voice of the Lord? Why did, you, why did you swoop down on the spoil and do evil in the Lord's sight? God told you to do this specifically. He gave you specific instructions. Why didn't you do this? And so Saul says to Samuel... But I have obeyed the voice of the Lord and gone on the mission on which the Lord has sent me and brought back Agag, the king of of the Amalekites, and I utterly destroyed the Amalekites, but but the people, they took the plunder, the sheep and oxen, the best of these things that should have been utterly destroyed, but to sacrifice to the Lord your God in Gilgal. Oh, no, I obeyed. I, I just brought back the king. Now, here's what's really kind of creepy about Saul. The, the, the command to kill every man, woman, and child, no problem. But to kill the king? No, I couldn't do that. That's a bit twisted, isn't it? And let's take this. We'll, we'll gather all this, this. Riches would have been in, in livestock in those days. Well, much riches would have been livestock. So let's take all these riches with us, and we'll, we'll sacrifice someone to the Lord. That's what the people would want to do. This is going to make me look good politically, basically. And he compromises and so what happens? So Samuel says to him, Has the Lord as great delight in burnt offering and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice and to heed than the fat of rams. No, no, this is the thing. When God wants to define unfaithfulness, he defines it as, you, you, Do you trust me enough to do what I say? Now, this is really important for us as New Testament believers because I know some of you are thinking, okay, John, yeah, you're just making us feel guilty. Get to the grace bit because we're feeling really bad. And obedient, isn't obedience just kind of commanded so that we realize we don't really obey, therefore we need a Savior. That's all it's about. No. It's not just about that. Because do you realize that the gospel is a command? Go. The gospel, listen, the command of the gospel is Believe. It's not like, would you like to believe? Would you like to come into a relationship with me? That is what God wants with us, is a relationship. But a relationship with God is not a pure relationship. Do you understand that? Now, if I treat you like my inferior, I'm in sin. Because we are peers. This is why, like, when people call me Pastor John, I'm like, that's cool. My job description, just call me John. We're, we're, I might be your pastor for, from now until uh, you know one of us dies, but we're brothers and sisters forever. Amen. Because we're peers, we should have a peer relationship. God is not our peer. No. And so when God says, "Here's how you can relate to me," obey the gospel, believe that what I've done for you is enough, and then we say, "Well, is it though? What is that?" you know, God, I don't know if it's enough, so I'm going to make a lot of sacrifices for you. And God says to us, like he he said to, to Saul through Samuel, to obey is better than sacrifice. If you're coming to worship me because you're trying to earn something from me or make up for what you think lacks and what happened with my son on the cross, you're not getting it. You're not actually obeying This is what, what's going on with Saul. See, God wants us to understand what failure is. Failure is not the fact that you've sinned. That's not good. Don't get me wrong. But we fail more by not taking our sin to God and saying, God, I just need to receive that forgiveness afresh. Do you know what happens when we just kind of flog ourselves? Oh, I'm so bad. I've done it again. I'm so bad. I'm so bad. I'm so bad. We're basically saying, Jesus, what Jesus said wasn't enough, wasn't enough, wasn't enough. That's what we're doing. Instead of humbling ourselves and saying, Lord, forgive me. I've sinned against you and against you only. Cleanse me and I shall be clean. Because I believe that what Jesus did was Enough. And Lord, I can't, my failures prove I can't change myself. But I believe the gospel, the good news that Jesus came to die for me to be forgiven and to be set free. And I want to learn to walk in that freedom. I want to obey the gospel. Are you guys following me? And so what happens is, of course, God says, this is God says, listen, he's committed this unfaithfulness, and he also continues to to connect that unfaithfulness with, notice, misdirected prayer. Not only did he not keep the word of the Lord, it says in verse 13, but also, and also because he consulted a medium for guidance, first part of verse 14, but he did not inquire of the Lord, therefore he killed him. Who killed who? God killed Saul. John, don't preach this stuff. Visitors aren't going to like it. Visitors, I don't like it either. It's hard to accept, man. But let me just say this. A a couple quick things. When God kills somebody, it doesn't mean he's damning them to hell necessarily. It can be a chastening them to death. Okay? So this is not by itself... A testament that God says, you're gone. I don't want you anymore. You're cast aside for me for eternity. It could be God just saying, you blew it up bad, dude. So the only thing left for you is, you know, the afterlife, the heaven. Because it's that bad. Now you might go, well, that's not a bad way to go. You know, it's a really bad way to go. The pain that leads to that is severe. And if you think you can play games with God, then you're in a really bad place. But there's a reality here. This is not necessarily a, a final judgment unsolved. Different people disagree on this, but not necessarily that. That's one thing. The other thing is, it's wrong for us. To, to mur- it's murder when we kill. It's just when God judges. We have to understand that as well. The thing is, we all want this. We all want God to destroy certain people, or at least keep them from ever destroying anybody else. But we just disagree on who those people should, you know, are and how that should happen. Well, God, good, good news is we don't have to make those decisions. God does. So, but there's something here that's really important. It's is, is the fact that God is remedying Saul's failure by making it clear that it's connected to a misdirected prayer. Because here, here, this is the thing that often happens, again, where our failure comes from, is it comes from a misdirected prayer. It says in, verse, uh, in 1 Samuel chapter 28, in verses 6 and 7, it says, When Saul inquired of the Lord, the Lord did not answer him, either by dreams or by the, the Urim or by the prophets. The Urim are just these just devices that priests would use to try to make decisions or discern God's will. But the point is, Paul prays, God doesn't answer. So what does Saul do? Saul said to his servants, find me a woman who's a medium. Fortune teller, crystal ball and all that. That I may go to her and inquire of her. Now the Bible says really clear in the book of Le- Leviticus that that is God condemns that. It's it's at best charlatry, you know, uh, someone's tricking you and taking your money. It's at worst demonic. Mm. You shouldn't have anything to do with that kind of stuff. If you are dabbling in the spiritualist church. I understand the, the, the attraction to that kind of thing because you're thinking I wanna I miss my loved ones, I get that, but you need to know that's it's at, at best it's it's a trick and it's at worst it's demonic. I'm just just trying to be clear on that, okay? That's right. Now my, here's the here's the reality though, okay? What's going on with Saul here is not just prayerlessness, but godless prayer. Uh, prayer is hard. I, I mean, can we all agree with that? It's it's hard to pray at times. I mean, anybody here never find prayer hard? Because then we'll rebuke you for being a Pharisee, because we know it's not true. No, I'm just kidding. I'm just teasing. No, prayer is hard, isn't it? It's difficult to pray. It's a blessing to pray. But you kind of have to pray until you pray. You have to kind of push through, don't you? There's a resistance in prayer. And it's, it's hard to get our head around prayer sometimes. I mean, I don't know about you, but sometimes I think, God, I, I'll, I'll start off by praising the Lord. You're so good. I, I just want to give you glory. I want, to, I want my heart to be right with you. I just want to confess these sins and have these cleansed. And I, want to, I really want to seek you. And I just, Lord, you're completely sovereign. And I'll start asking God for the things that I need. And I'll start going after a while. I'm like, that's kind of tiring, Lord. Just fix everything. <laughs> A good, just fix everything. There's my prayer because I'm a bit lazy in prayer, and so so sort so of to labor praying for other people or to take the time to worship where your heart actually engages. It's not always easy. It's easy for us to give up, so it's it's kind of easy to be harsh on Saul, but we're probably guilty of the same thing, aren't we? Now, now, now here's the the reality. James tells us that New Testament believers struggle with a similar thing. He says, in James, James writes in James chapter 4, listen, he says, you do not have because you do not ask God. And when you ask, you do not receive because you ask with wrong motives that you may spend what you get on your pleasures. Now, let me just kind of make this super simple, okay? So you don't get too confused, all right? God is not against us having pleasure. He's invented every good thing. Do you like to eat good food? That's why we give God thanks. Thanks, God, this is good food. We love it. It's your provision. Uh, do Do you like good relationships? That's why we pray for each other, and thank you, God, for good relationships. You know? Every good thing you think of, every kind of physical thing that God's given us, every kind of relational thing God's given us, there are good gifts that God gives us to enjoy. God's not against pleasure. That's not the point of this. The point of this is this. Here's here's when prayer becomes godless, when we see God only as a means to an end. What are we doing then? We're rubbing the bottle. Gee, come give me three whizzes. But we don't say genie three. We should say, uh, Father, you're, you're glorious and you're wonderful. And I'm going to sing songs and I'm going to make sure I feel this way. And when I feel this way, you're finally going to do what I want you to do. Mm-hmm. That's godless prayer. See, the kind of prayer that God calls us to, he wants to develop in us, is, is, is a simple childlike dependence. See, now, now a child often wants things that their parents will give them. They, they see parents as a means to an end. But when push comes to to shove for a child, they want the parent more than the stuff. I've done enough work with social services to know that's the case. And and God wants to develop this in us, where we say, Father, you are a good father, and you give good gifts to your children. And we don't want to not ask for those good gifts, because you do give good gifts to your children. But what we really want to want is you. And what Saul did in an extreme sense, we often do in a lesser sense, God's a means to an end. The, the, the end that Saul was looking for is just kind of please take care of this Philistine problem. You know, one of the things that's interesting about Brexit, I remember when it was first being voted on, when it was, when it was still before it had been voted on, uh, reading some really good articles written by Christians, uh, about how, how do we vote. And, they, and here's what they basically said. Really good articles. A couple different authors from different tribes said the same thing. We vote our conscience based on, Lord, direct me, what's the best thing for the gospel? Amen. So you, you know how we often vote? What's the best thing for my pocketbook? Mm-hmm. Now, granted, we, we, have, we need to provide for our families. There's nothing wrong with us being motivated to provide for our families. There's nothing wrong with that at all. But what should motivate as much as God, what's the best thing for the gospel? How are you going to be made known? And so I've met believers who were mature believers, love Jesus, that voted that we would stay in the EU so that we could send more missionaries to Europe. There's the, believe it or not, there's less Christians in Western Europe than there is in England. So let's keep that door open. Others said, no. Europe's pushing us towards godless things, so let's get separated so that we can have more godly, you know, Laws here. I'm not saying either one is right or wrong. I'm saying that's the right motive. Do you see what I'm saying? When we're crying out to God and saying, God, you're sovereign, not us. You're the king, not us. What is best for your perfect plan? God wants to develop us in that. And that that trickles down into every specific need of our life. See, I, I don't hesitate to ask God for stuff that I want. I really don't. I may initially, but as as I pray, I just realize, God, you're a good Father. I I really would like to surf again one day. I, I, I actually pray for that, and it sounds ridiculous probably to you, but I miss surfing. And God says, "Well, you're too fat. You need to work out before you start surfing." It. No, but but I miss surfing, and so, and I'm like, God, I'd love to be able to have my life somewhere, land somewhere, or in some circumstance where I could surf more often, that would be great. So I ask God for that. But I trust that my father knows what is the best thing for me. Maybe he knows that I love surfing so much as a young person that it would become an idol quickly for me again. I don't know. Or jellyfish. (laughs) The point is this. God is remedying Saul's failure by making sure that his audience recognizes that it's clearly defined as unfaithfulness and it's clearly connected to a misdirected prayer. God wants to teach us how to make that He becomes both the means and the end to what, what our existence is about. Now, lastly, and this is the really the most important thing. In verse, the last part of verse 14, it says, and so after God killed Saul. It says he turned the kingdom over to David, the son of Jesse. Now we know from the other 1 and 2 Kings, 1 and 2, Chron- uh, 1 and 2 Samuel, that was, the process was a lot longer than that. That was years, actually. But the author of Chronicles wants to say this is what God was doing. This is the overarching preacher. God was saying, I'm bringing David. Why? Because David, as we're going to see in the next several chapters, the rest of 1 Corinthians or one Chronicles, sorry, David typifies an excellent king. Why? This is why. I want you to listen to this. We're going to close with this. This is Jesus' interaction uh, with the religious leaders of his day who were expecting the Messiah to be a descendant of David and to be a military strong man. And when Jesus comes on the scene and he says he's the Messiah, they're resisting it. So here's the conversation. Listen to this. Matthew chapter 22. When the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them, saying, What do you think about the Christ, that's God's chosen king, whose son is he? And they said to Jesus, he's the son of David. He's an ancestor of King David. They knew this. They understood the lesson of Chronicles. David typifies the final promised king who will reign forever. They knew that. No problem. But then Jesus says to him, okay, then how does David in the Spirit call him Lord? Now, he's going to quote Psalm 118. David wrote that Psalm saying, The Lord said to my Lord, that is Yahweh said to the Messiah, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Now, all the Jews saw that that was David speaking to Yahweh about the Messiah. There's no problem with that interpretation, okay? And so Jesus asked, if David then calls him Lord, how is he his son? And no one was able to answer him a word, nor from that day on did anyone dare question him anymore. Here's what was going on. The Pharisees said, we want the king that we want, who will come and tell us, Pharisees, you rock. Because all of Israel, or most of Israel, thought, Pharisees, you rock. They were the spiritual Olympic athletes of their day. They were serious about scripture. They they took it at face value. They were hopeful for something eternal. They stood their ground in front of the Romans. (laughs) These guys were great. But they also thought they were great. And they trusted in themselves that they were righteous. And so when Jesus comes and he starts questioning that, starts challenging. um, Blessed are not those who think they're so great. Blessed are those who are poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn. They're like, whoa, you can't be the Messiah. You do the miracles of the Messiah, but you couldn't be the Messiah. Jesus says, well, who do you think the Messiah is? He's both man and God. He's both the son of David and the Lord of David. You see, this is how God remedies bad leadership. He provides the perfect king. Now listen, those of you guys who are in, recognize, you people that are in recognized leadership positions, your your bosses... Your parents, your leaders in the church, in some way—if case you didn't notice—you're going to fail, and your failure is part of God's provision to show you you cannot trust yourself. You got to trust Jesus. In fact, you got to point past yourself to Jesus. You're never going to be the leader that people need. But you can be the leader that God wants by pointing people to the leader that people need. You see, I didn't die for your sins. To be honest, I wouldn't die for your sins. might die for you if the moment came, maybe. I like to think of myself as brave and courageous, but I don't know. But I'm not going to suffer because you guys are idiots. Sorry. But Jesus did. Jesus died so that we could be forgiven. Jesus died so that we could learn to trust him as the king that God wants for us. See, Christianity isn't just having uh, a, a giant GP in the sky who gives you the right pill and says, on your way. It's about recognizing that we all need a king, and the good news is, is that king is so good, he died to make us able to live in his kingdom forever. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for sending Jesus. And help us, Lord, to believe that he is who he said he is. Help us to believe that what he did on the cross was enough. Help us to obey when you say believe. Lord, we say we believe. Help our unbelief. Lord, help us to grow in our trust in you, Lord. Help us to learn to pray because we want to know you better. Help us not to flog ourselves, but rest in the finished work of Jesus. Lord, we look at Saul's failure, and we don't want to be pointing fingers. We look at the failure of those around us. We don't want to be pointing fingers. We want to say, Lord, rescue us from the same failures. Jesus, you're our king. And so, Lord, we commit this day to you, and we say, be king of this day. And we thank you for this time together in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.